family estrangement is defined by Wikipedia as the loss of a previously existing relationship between family members through physical and or emotional distancing, often to the extent that there is little or no communication between the individuals involved for a prolonged period. Many of us have gone through or currently are experiencing family estrangement. We are in our own family. I think in the Bible we have a number of examples of family estrangement. Can you think of any? Well, I think of King Saul and his son-in-law, David. Family estrangement. I think of Jacob and his twin brother Esau. And I think of Hosea and his wife Gomer. And you might can come up with a whole lot of other examples. Simply and straightforwardly, it would seem that the remedy to estrangement is pretty simple, right? Forgiveness and reconciliation. But we know that all too often that doesn't happen, or at least it doesn't happen like we hope it would. Our text for today, from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21, is from the life of Joseph. And Joseph experienced family estrangement as well. And I hope as we look at this passage and think through the life of Joseph, we can kind of view it a little bit like a case study. And I hope that uh, as we work through this passage, we can seriously consider these issues of estrangement, forgiveness, and reconciliation and make application in our lives. So uh, the text is on the screen. You can follow along there or perhaps in your own Bibles. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about Bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. When I look at a passage, I like to ask these basic questions, you know, who, what, when, how, why? All those basic observation questions. 
And if you look at the life of Joseph, as it's recorded in Genesis from chapters 37 to 50, there's a chronology that you can discern there. And sometimes you have to do a little math and a little guesstimation. We know that Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him out, betrayed him. He was sold to a caravan of traders heading to Egypt, essentially became a slave and was separated from his father and his brothers. After getting to Egypt, he became a servant or a slave in the house of a man named Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. And he rose to a position of responsibility in Potiphar's house. You remember the story? But he was good-looking, and Potiphar's wife had her eye on him, and she was tempting him, but he resisted, so she got upset, made a false accusation, and he wound up in prison. Now, as I look at it in Joseph's life, this was kind of the low point. I mean, it's bad enough to be sold out by your own brothers and become a slave, but now you're a criminal, a prisoner, with an undefined sentence. But God was with him, as the Scriptures say, even in prison, and he also rose to a position of responsibility and favor as much as you can as a prisoner. And he had the ability to interpret dreams. So he interpreted a couple of fellow prisoners' dreams, and they came true. Later on, you know, Pharaoh had dreams, his famous dreams, and nobody could be found to interpret them, and so Joseph was remembered, brought before Pharaoh, and by God's grace, he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. This so pleased Pharaoh that he elevated Joseph, the governor of all Egypt, number two in the nation or the empire. The scriptures in Genesis 41, 46 say that at this time Joseph was 30 years old. So 13 years of suffering at the hand of his brothers and others. And now he's in a pretty good position. What happened next in fulfillment of Pharaoh's dreams is what I call seven years of positive climate change. (laughs) The scriptures call them years of plenty. And I take it from that that it was good for agriculture the right amount of rainfall, temperatures, you know, no hail to destroy crops, no swarms of locusts coming into the land to devastate the harvest. And times were good. So, according to the wisdom of Joseph, there was a 20% tax on the harvest, which nobody seemed to mind, I guess. And they stored it up 
Because after these seven years of plenty, then you have seven years of negative climate change caused by God, which the Scriptures call the famine years. So, Joseph's brothers, because the famine extended even to where they lived in Canaan, they needed food. So his ten older brothers, the very ones who had sold him out, came down to buy food in Egypt. Age 30, had seven years of plenty. Maybe they ran out of food at the end of the first year of the famine, right? So Joseph is about 38 years old at this time. He hasn't seen his brothers in 21 years. We know from the record of Genesis that it took two more trips. Joseph's brothers going back to Canaan and coming back to Egypt, back to Canaan before they actually brought their father, Jacob, their families, their possessions, their crops, <clears throat> and moved to Egypt. So that puts Jacob, uh, Joseph at about 39 years old when he finally saw his father again. And the scriptures tell us that Jacob lived for 17 years in Egypt. So if you add all this together, when he died, and this scene that we have as our text for today comes shortly after Jacob died, it seems that Joseph is about 56. So this is 39 years after the betrayal. And they still aren't fully reconciled. So what were his brothers feeling at this time, after their father died, after the big funeral? Well, it's pretty evident from our text today they were feeling uneasy, guilty, anxious, and afraid. They're afraid of retaliation by Joseph because Joseph, because of the reversal, was in the position of power. And they thought, maybe our father's been protecting us all these 17 years that we've been enjoying life in Egypt. And maybe our brother secretly hates us. And he's going to take it out on us. And then they thought to themselves, maybe it would be good if we asked forgiveness. As far as I can see in the whole record of Genesis from the time they betrayed him up until this point, they had not asked forgiveness. Now, did his brothers have good reason to distrust Joseph? What was Joseph's relationship with these brothers once they moved to Egypt? Well, you know, when Joseph finally revealed his identity to them, the scripture says that he wept, he kissed them, he invited their them to come to Egypt with their families to save their lives. He gave them a place for their flocks. He provided for them during the famine. He settled them in the best of the land. As far as I can tell from the scriptural record, for 17 years, they had it pretty good under his care and protection. 
No indication I get that he was treating them badly, but they still weren't sure. It bothered them in their hearts. So what did they do? Well, they approach Joseph, it seems, through an intermediary. Did you catch that? They sent a message to Joseph. Now, maybe they had some kind of a representative. Maybe they had something written out. I don't know that they delivered to Joseph. And they say, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. Now, what do you think about that? You think that's pretty likely that Jacob did this on his deathbed? If he wanted to say that to Joseph, just say it to him directly. Why tell his ten brothers and then they think about it way after the funeral, you know? To give this message, it seems to me that it's just a fabrication, a lie. And this is how they're attempting their reconciliation with their brother, right? As if he can't see through it. Joseph, you see, had the power of life and death over his brothers. He could have taken vengeance. He could have imprisoned them. He could have tortured them. He could have enslaved them. He could have put them to death. This was not a society run by law. This was a society run by people. And in this case, it was Joseph. He had that power. There wouldn't have been any other tribunal. No other court of appeal. They were standing before the Supreme Court. It would have been so easy, so convenient, so without consequences for Joseph if he wanted to take vengeance. So how did Joseph react? Well, he was just like Pastor Brent. He wept. You read through the record of Genesis, and there are many, many times when it says that Joseph wept. When I first went, came to the door like three and a half years ago, there were boxes of Kleenex all over, on the floor and on the seats. You remember that? Look at this. Why is this here? When someone's telling you something and they're weeping, what do you think? They are sincere. That's what I think. They are deeply moved. What I'm thinking is, this is coming from the heart. It's true. That was Joseph's first reaction. He wept when they spoke to him. Joseph's forgiveness was real. He intended them no harm. He wasn't out to make them pay. He wasn't bitter. He didn't even charge them with fabricating this story about their father's deathbed statement. Right? 
And I think he also wept at this time because somehow they didn't believe that he'd forgiven them. Somehow, all the good he'd done for his brothers and their families for the past 17 years in Egypt, plus his statements to them recorded when he revealed his identity, they weren't enough. They weren't convincing. He wasn't able to get through. When he revealed his identity to them, this is what he said, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Somehow that didn't register. And then... Joseph's next reaction, he he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Have you ever said that to anybody? (laughs) Have you ever been in a situation where you thought to say that? Am I in the place of God? Who would ever say that to anybody? What did Joseph mean? I think he meant... God is your judge, not me. I am not in God's place. Joseph didn't view that it was his place to take vengeance. He'd given up the right to retaliate. He'd given up the opportunity to retaliate. Instead, he actively demonstrated love. I'll provide for you and your children. Joseph wanted full reconciliation with his ten brothers. Maybe he thought he already had it. But apparently he didn't. Have you ever thought this question in reading through the record of Joseph in Genesis? When did he forgive his brothers? You ever thought about that? What do you think? Age 17, his brothers had just sold him as a slave to this caravan, these traitors. He's heading down to Egypt. He's lost his freedom. You think he forgave his brothers then, age 17? You know, it would take a pretty mature young man to fully forgive his brothers at that point. How about a little bit later? He's been in prison. He's been elevated by Pharaoh. 30 years old, made the governor. Think he'd forgiven his brothers then? You know, the scripture doesn't really tell us. And maybe I'm reading way too much into this, but during those years of plenty, he got married. And he had two sons. And his oldest son, you know what he named his oldest son? Manasseh. You know what that means? Forget. He said... 
God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. You know, I don't hear the ring of forgiveness and reconciliation in that statement. How about a little bit later when he saw his brothers? He's about age 38 and they show up before him. I think for sure he had forgiven them when he understood finally why he was in Egypt. He saw his brothers and the scripture says he remembered his dreams. Remember those dreams early in his life when he was 17 or before and the, you know, these sheaves were bowing down, you know? He remembered his dreams. And then he knew. God had sent me before you to preserve life. So if he'd forgiven his brothers then when he saw them for the first time, why did he go through this masquerade, this ruse? Why not just say, you know, I'm Joseph. I'm here. We can have a relationship. But he didn't do that, did he? Why trick them, confuse them? Why send them back home and require that they bring their brother Benjamin? If you read the story on one level, aside from being exciting reading, kind of like a novel, you know, it seems kind of mean and vengeful, don't you think? But was that what was really going on in Joseph's heart at that time? You see... If Joseph had wanted vengeance, he could have taken it out on his ten brothers right then. They didn't even recognize him. He could have thrown them in prison, left them there. He could have had them killed. Nobody would have said anything. Instead, there's about four chapters in Genesis, a huge amount of space, actually, devoted to this masquerade. His brothers didn't recognize him on the first visit. He orchestrated the situation, accusing them as spies, throwing them everybody in prison for three days. Finally, he let them out. He sold them grain, put the money back in their sacks and said, don't come back unless you bring Benjamin. I don't want to see your faces unless you bring Benjamin, his full brother. So they go home, eat up all their food. Get desperate. There's nothing else that they can do. They finally convince their father, okay, we got to take Benjamin and go back. They're fully compliant, right? They come back and he does it all again. The second time. Puts the money back in their sacks. This time he puts the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Then when they get not too far away, he sends his men. They discover it. And there they are, red-handed, nothing they can do, totally guilty. Then he threatens to enslave Benjamin. What is going on here? Why this ruse? Why so much time delay in revealing his identity? Well, of course, the scripture doesn't directly tell us. 
But as I read the story, it seems that Joseph gave his brothers a chance to betray Benjamin, go home and lie about it to their father exactly the same as they had done 22 years before to him. He set up the exact same situation. And his brothers, those ten older brothers, they had the opportunity to save their own skins, as it were. They had the opportunity to go home and lie to their father. And he wanted to know, had their hearts changed? Were they just as rotten as they had been 22 years before? Or had God done anything in their lives? Was this a condition for Joseph to forgive his brothers? You know, I think not. But I think it was a test, the results of which would have affected their reconciliation. The major factor for Joseph, I think, in forgiving his brothers was that he understood God's sovereignty over this whole situation. He says... You know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to preserve lives. We have that same principle as Christians, as Paul so clearly spells out in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. When Joseph understood what God was doing in his life, It gave his suffering meaning and purpose. And he could forgive his brothers. By way of application, I have one always, one sometimes, and one never. Okay? As Christians, I think we can always forgive. This is one of the greatest graces, one of the tremendous benefits of knowing our Lord. Understanding God's sovereignty does, I think, help us to forgive others, just like it helped Joseph. Because we know that whatever evil others direct towards us that God is in control. And we can learn from our Lord Jesus who hanging there on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Well, in one sense, of course, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were putting Jesus to death. But on a deeper sense, they did not know what they were doing. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand God's plan for the salvation of the world. Once Joseph got the bigger picture of what God was doing in his life, I think it's clear that he did forgive his brothers. As Christians today, we have something that Joseph didn't have, at least nearly as clearly as we have it. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only the sovereignty of God that we can look to and trust in, that God is in control, 
But the cross and what it means, that if I have anything against anybody, it comes to an end at the foot of the cross. That even if I have anything against myself, the blood of Christ has covered my sin. If God has forgiven me, how can I not forgive even someone who betrays me and sells me out? His blood is the basis for forgiveness. We can always forgive by God's grace, by His power. Sometimes we can reconcile. And I think sometimes we can. You know, reconciliation is not the same as forgiveness. I can forgive even if the other party isn't repentant, doesn't want a relationship. I can still forgive. Because forgiveness can be one way. But you know, reconciliation has to be two-way. It's a relationship. If you're going to reestablish that, both parties have to want it. And there has to be trust, good faith, mutual goodwill. Otherwise, your reconciliation is just on the surface or fake or maybe even dangerous. I think of... uh, King David and King Saul and their relationship. You know, Saul tried to spear David at least twice. And he sent men to David's house to murder him in his bed. He was so jealous. He was so troubled by an evil spirit. Maybe he had certain mental illness. I don't know what all. But that was a dangerous relationship. Saul's son, Jonathan, and David, of course, were best of friends. And there's an incident in which they're talking together, and David is convinced that Saul wants to kill him, and Jonathan isn't fully convinced. So they come up with this ruse, right? David doesn't show up at the table for a couple days, Jonathan is there. He lies to his father about it. And after a while, Saul gets wise. And even Jonathan is convinced that Saul wants to kill David. As I read the record of Scripture, after that, Saul and David were not reconciled. I'm convinced that David loved Saul. And forgave him. But, you know, he wasn't going to be in the same place at the same time. He wanted to protect his own life. And so, when David had opportunity, you know, in the cave or whatever, those scenes, to do harm to Saul, he did not. Maybe he humiliated him a little bit, but he didn't hurt him. When Saul died, David was greatly grieved. Lest you think failure to reconcile is just a phenomenon that we see in the Old Testament, I see it in the New Testament too. 
The pastors are preaching through Acts. And you know, I see time after time that the Apostle Paul is fleeing his enemies, his persecutors. He had a lot of people who wished him harm. And sometimes he separated himself from them geographically, but I'm convinced he forgave them. They didn't know what they were doing. But he wasn't reconciled. This is my idea. I'll give a disclaimer. Maybe we should put that pastor a warning screen up there, okay? I'm no counselor. I'm not giving anybody any specific advice for any particular situation. That's what your pastors are for. But this is just kind of what I see from studying in the Scriptures. Particularly this question, is it okay, like Joseph, to test people's hearts before reconciling? This is my idea. With everyday relationships in your family, your friends, your church, your co-workers, people are always botching, you know making mistakes, offending others, but their relationship is basically good. There's no need to test. You just forgive and go on about it, right? But if you're in an abusive relationship, it's wise to test. If you're considering a reconciliation, or at least take it slowly. Think about Joseph. Would you call his ten brothers abusers? You ever thought of that? Joseph, all of a sudden they show up. He hadn't seen them in like, what, 22 years. He doesn't know what's happened in their lives. The last thing he knew about them was that they were human traffickers with their own brother. And then he overheard their conversation and found out they had gone back and lied to their father about it. Is this the kind of person you want to reconcile with? He'd had no interaction with them for over 20 years. He didn't know if their hearts had changed. He devised his test. When he knew their hearts was changed, then he sought full reconciliation. Never take vengeance. When I'm tempted to strike back, to make somebody pay, to return evil for evil... The words of Joseph should stop me in my tracks. Am I in the place of God? It's God's place to take vengeance, right? That's what he claimed for himself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's what the Lord says. It's not our role. So from the life and record of Joseph and other passages... We can always forgive. Sometimes we can reconcile. And that's the hope. That's the prayer. And we can never take vengeance.